Some people don't like games, but the truth is we're all playing them all the time. The thing is some games are little games and some games are big games. Hey, it's Seth and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about strategies, tactics, moves, winning, losing, and the infinite game. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn, just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. Chess is a game. It's an almost perfect little game. There are 64 squares, there are 32 pieces. The rules can fit on two sheets of paper. The rules are the rules, you play the game, you can lose the game or you can win the game. And some people don't want to play chess because the game is a little trivial. It's trivial in the sense that it is a pastime, it is something that is not going to affect the outside world, and it's something that a lot of people aren't very good at and it doesn't make them feel good to play a game they're not good at. Little games that are optimized for big markets, things like Battleship or Cheat or Monopoly, offend people who love little games because they are obviously manipulative. The rules aren't pure or clean, and the person who developed the game is trying very hard to create moments of tension where sometimes it's not as fun as it could be. But I don't want to talk so much about little games as I want to talk about big games. When we start talking about other things in our life as games, people who don't understand the dynamics of a game or don't like games sometimes fade away. So when I talk about game theory, for example, people think it's a discussion about how to win at checkers. It's not. Game theory helps us understand that a game involves inputs, decisions, and resources. There are multiple players, and when the inputs change, new decisions are required. Those decisions are actually decisions because there isn't an infinite number of resources. You don't have unlimited time and unlimited power to do everything, so you have to choose. And these choices have repercussions, and it leads to outputs. And understanding the abstraction that we get when we look at things in the world as a game helps us understand how the world works and how to make it better. So what am I talking about? Let's think for a minute about Twitter. 
Twitter is a game. The rules of the game are pretty simple. Until recently, 140 characters. That's all you get. There's a format. There's a structure. You're allowed to post as many times as you want per day. And these are the basic rules. Then a Twitter user invented a new rule, the hashtag. So the rules can change just a little bit. But why did Twitter work? Well, first, let's start with why Twitter didn't work. For years after its founding, Twitter wasn't much of a success at all. And it was only when they went to South by Southwest and put up monitors in the hallways that they got a certain section of the cool kids to start using Twitter to do what? To play a game. It's a game about status and affiliation. It's a game in which you take outputs that are coming from outside the board game, outputs about what happened in this conference or what's happening in politics or pop culture, and you turn them around in some way to use your limited resources to get your message into the Twittersphere to see if you're going to win this round. And there are lots of ways to keep score. Some people keep score by counting how many followers they have, how many likes they got, how many comments they got. Some people keep score by seeing how deeply they control other people and make them unhappy. Some people keep track of whether they could get a hashtag to trend or not. There are lots of ways to keep score in this game of Twitter. And to the delight of people who own early shares of Twitter, the game keeps getting refreshed. It gets refreshed because new players show up, new inputs from outside the world show up, people devote themselves to playing, not realizing they're not the customers of Twitter, they're the product. That that passion, that disappointment, that fear, that angst, that disillusion that people feel when they're using Twitter, that is a byproduct to get you to come back and use Twitter some more so you can see more ads. Twitter is a game. And we can now go to a new level of abstraction, which is some people are showing up inventing games that are played on somebody else's board. If we look at some of the nuanced discussion that went on about QAnon, it turns out QAnon can be seen as a game. It is a role-playing game that is controlled by a semi-anonymous game master and played on lots and lots of boards. It manipulated Facebook's algorithms to grow. It thrives on platforms like YouTube and Twitter. So it's on somebody else's board. But again, there are inputs, there's decisions, and there are resources at play among the people who are playing. And when we look at these games that are now being pushed onto our culture, what we have to acknowledge is that these games, while they might benefit the game master, have significant side effects. And so I want to talk for a second about the biggest game of all, the biggest meta game. And that meta game is the game of individuals seeking to make money by playing with open markets and capitalism. That that game dynamic did not exist 800 years ago and was pretty scarce 200 years ago. And there are lots of ways that our culture could have evolved, but the game dynamics of, I'm going to call it capitalism here, even though it's not pure capitalism, the game dynamics of capitalism, that ratchet, that people who start winning the game start to play the game harder, that the game created public school and organized schooling as we know it, that the game is deeply embedded into every element of our culture, that the game invented this thing that 
some of us call marketing, that the game turns out to be something that politicians have no choice but to play. And around and around it goes. If you want to change the culture, it really helps to play a game so that people who are trying to play the game of capitalism will go along with the change you seek to make. So you want to get rid of carbon and save the planet? Well, one way you do it is with cap and trade so that people can make a profit limiting carbon. One way you can do it is by investing in technology that drives down the price of solar. Because we have seen in the last few years, as solar has gotten cheaper, nobody is building coal power plants, and lots of people are building solar and wind power plants. Some of them are doing it because they'd like their grandchildren to survive, but many of them are doing it because it's a great strategy in the game, because you come out ahead turning that ratchet around and around. And like chess, the rules, the basic fundamental rules behind capitalism are super simple. Find something someone wants to buy that you can sell for more than it costs you to make it. Repeat. And then add to it the master level game, which is invest in people who are playing that game. And now one higher level of abstraction. If someone came in a time machine from a thousand years ago and watched a day trader trading Bitcoin sitting in their living room, they would be completely mystified. If you explained to this person, this person who used to work digging ditches, this person who used to work farming, growing food, that this person sitting in this room is richer than any person who was alive on earth 800 years ago, they wouldn't have a clue what this person is doing. Because sitting in your living room, day trading Bitcoin is a game. It is a game in which inputs come, decisions are made, and then there are outputs. And looking at all of the things around us and understanding the game dynamic behind it makes a big difference in understanding culture and getting your ideas to spread. Jim Kars and then Simon Sinek both wrote books about infinite versus finite games. I recommend both of them. A finite game is a game with a super simple set of rules like chess. There are multiple players. There's often a time limit but there is definitely a winner at the end. Some finite games are zero-sum games, which means that every time you win a little, somebody loses a little. Every time you win a lot, somebody loses a lot. Other finite games aren't zero-sum games. There are things that someone can do that pay benefits for lots of people without hurting anybody else. A musician standing on a street corner busking is playing music for the people who are paying for it but they're not taking anything away from the people who aren't paying for it. The world gets better when we play games that aren't zero-sum. But what Kars and Cynic also pointed out is that there's another kind of game, which is an infinite game, which you aren't playing to win. You're simply playing to play. As I've said before, you don't play catch with a three-year-old to win. You play catch so you can play catch and so you can play catch again. Because if you win catch with a three-year-old, you never get to play catch with that person or just about anybody ever again. No, the goal is to play, to keep playing. So capitalism is a tricky game because there are elements of capitalism that are zero sum. That if there's only a certain amount of money in a certain part of the economy and you take more of it, someone gets less of it. But there are other elements of capitalism 
that have enriched the entire planet. Because it turns out that giving other people access to tools might make you money, but the tools help those people weave together possibility, perhaps for the next person. So what we've got to do is we dance on a precipice, a precipice of carbon, a precipice of democracy, a precipice of civil discourse, a precipice of public health. All of them are dancing right around the edge of, is this a finite game or an infinite game? Are we playing a little game or are we playing a big game? How do we encourage people to play this game in a way that doesn't require them to rewire how they think about games and status and affiliation, but allows them to eagerly play a game that we're all glad is being played? And that is when the time component kicks in. Because in the short run, people make decisions about what is good for them right now. It is good for someone right now to one-click shop because it's convenient, it's cheaper, it's faster, and now we can go back to what we were doing. In the long run, it's entirely possible we will miss downtown. We will miss the thriving community near where we live. We will miss the civil discourse that comes from small and perhaps not so small businesses having retail outlets nearby, paying taxes for them, upkeep, etc. But in the short run, our incentive playing this little slash big game is to win the round, not to play the infinite game. And that's why when we think about this abstraction of what game are we playing, what we realize is that almost every single game that thrives, that leaves the players better off, has referees. It has a commissioner. It has a structure. Even open market, or you could call it free market, capitalism still has referees. It still has a significant amount of oversight because if it didn't, then you would end up with insider trading, the dark web, and people scamming every single day. So in our rush to play the little game or the big game, it's easy to be confused about the fact that we're playing by the rules and we'd like everyone else to, but we also need somebody to enforce the rules. And so in our rush to play more games, we have to be on high alert to discover whether there's a game master somewhere who is pushing us to play a game that benefits them. Maybe we score some points in the short run, but are we signing up for dead ends, for cul-de-sacs, for traps, for games that feel seductive in the short run, but ultimately will cause pain and suffering in the long run. We need to understand what's in it for the Game Master, what's in it for Parker Brothers, what's in it for Twitter. Who are the customers? What is the product? What is the transaction like? Because on top of the little game is the big game. And on top of the big game is the only game. And that game the meta game, the game at the highest level of abstraction, is pretty simple. We all get to play it exactly one time. We all have a chance to leave things better than we found them. We all can choose to ignore zero-sum games and play games that are additive, that are infinite, that are constructive. But we can't do that if we don't see the game in the first place. Thanks for listening. Your move. We'll be back in a second with a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. 
When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you, but I can't answer your questions if you don't ask them. So please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. A really good question from Michael. Hi, Seth. It's Michael from Sydney, Australia. And I have just finished listening to your podcast on what an office is for. And I'm curious about your thoughts about the office as a place for incidental learning and insight. As an architect, I know that this is something in particular that the profession has struggled with over this time of COVID and remote um, work, where there are opportunities to discover something in the office, such as watching someone draw on a computer or on tracing paper and giving them some immediate feedback or insight into how they might be able to resolve the problem they're trying to solve in that particular project, or even being able to pull a book off the shelf and show the team how someone else might have resolved something similar in a project or to explain something to them. There are all those opportunities you might have as you walk past someone's computer and you see them do something with a piece of software where identifying functionality that you may not have been there, those those serendipitous occasions that, that happen in the office that give you opportunity to learn or bring insight. And I'm really curious about how you think about this when it comes to what an office is for. Really looking forward to your insights and really grateful for all of the work that you do. Thanks, Seth. Thanks for teeing up this rant, Michael. I appreciate it. Try to imagine the following. For 30 years, so it's 2050, we've been working from home. We've been using Zoom. We've been sharing documents, editing them together, finding discussion boards, interacting with other people, regardless of where they are in time and space, to get our work done. And then someone shows up and says, wait, 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 I got this great idea. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to spend two and a half hours a day on additional grooming, commuting, parking, schlepping. And then we're all going to go to this building, this really expensive building. And while we're there, one of two things is going to happen. Either if you've got status, you're going to get a, a room all to yourself with a door that shuts. And maybe sometimes, just maybe, someone in physical proximity to you will bump into you on your way to the coffee machine and have an impromptu yet important conversation. Or we're going to put you in a cube farm. Maybe there aren't even walls around your cube jammed up against other people because A, it's cheaper for us, and B, people will be able to look over your shoulder, not in an organized, structured way, but just sort of randomly 
overhearing snippets of what you say on the phone or watching what you're typing on the screen. And all of these connections will make it better and pay for your additional dry cleaning costs as well. I think if we said that, people would think we were nuts because it's absurd. It's absurd because it leaves out enrollment and intentionality. It's absurd because it puts physical proximity ahead of project focus, that we built the office because we had no other choices, that in an industrial setting, we need everybody to be right next to the assembly line. But as more and more people are working with ideas instead of stuff, and we have the ability to transform time and space by using the internet, all of a sudden, most of the benefits of everyone going to the office at the same time go down really fast. So what I'm pushing for here is intentionality and enrollment. If people want to work together, they can create enormous things of value. Wikipedia is built by 5,000, 50,000, and 5 million people who have never met in person, but they show their work. Their work can be shared and improved and edited, and boom, it's better. One hour later, four hours later, it's transformed. Turns out, if you've got a medical problem and a lot of resources, the best thing is for six specialists around the world to look at all your tests, your diagnostics, your x-rays, and yes, do telemedicine with you. You will get far more insight than if you traipse from one person to another over the course of weeks. That when information is at stake, we come out ahead when people intentionally share it in a structured way. That a shared Google Doc is so much more efficient in terms of exposing what we want to talk about than sitting around a conference room and trying to read the signs and murmurs, the hierarchy of status, the loud people getting listened to more than the non-loud people, the people with traditional privilege getting a louder say than the ones who don't have it. We are rewiring the whole system. If I was going to hire an architect, I want a firm of five committed professionals who are leaning into it, who are working together in a shared digital format. Boom, back and forth, boom, done, improved, listened to. Then I want to go to a fancy office where I am distracted by stuff that might make sense in a given moment but isn't done with intention. So yeah, that's a rant. And maybe I'm looking for a silver lining where there isn't one. But I got to say, we've done a pretty good job of suddenly and dramatically switching in the middle of trauma and disarray to working remotely. But now, now it's on us to rebuild that into something that's delightful and energizing and effective. Thanks for listening to my rant. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, 
yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.